All right, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, so if you don't remember, last time we were in Ephesians 5, 3, verse 14. Um, and in that little section, the apostle, well, it's not a little section, it's quite a hard-hitting, long section. The apostle changes the image from walking as new creatures in Christ to walking as children of light rather than of darkness. Uh, and now he's going to change the image again, so from new creatures to light and dark. Now he's going to change it from wisdom and folly. So there's going to be a different image of walking here today. Uh, But we find ourselves in the second half of the book of Ephesians. The first half, if you remember, is a section devoted to to really God's eternal plan for salvation, um, his great and glorious plan to save us. And then the second half of Ephesians mostly is about how do we live in light of that salvation. Uh, And so today's passage finds us in that second half. So would you read Ephesians chapter 5 with me? Um, Verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we pray and ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that characterizes the particular cultural moment that we live in is that we live in the information age. Uh, They say that 90% or over 90% of all the information ever created was created in the past couple of years. (laughs) So 90% of everything that's ever been created or made or thought of in this world has been recorded and brought about in the last couple of years alone, uh, which is a staggering thought. You know, there's billions and billions of information data bytes going out into the world every second of every day. And so we live swamped and flooded in information. And the thing about the information age is that those people that can take the information and join it all together into what's called knowledge are the ones that are able to succeed and thrive and make money off all the information. So much so that they now call our age or our economy the knowledge economy, at least for us in the the first world. Um, We live in an age where you can make money by pulling all this information together and packaging it and giving it to others or utilizing it um, for some ulterior means um, to create a business product or an innovative way of looking at things. And so we live in the information age and the knowledge economy. But the thing about those two is that there's a big gap between information and knowledge, but there's also an even bigger gap between knowledge and wisdom. You see, we have knowledge, we have information, we have so much access to everything that there is in this world, yet that doesn't necessarily imply that we're going to be wise. Take Google, for an instance. We have one of those Google homes in our house, and one of our most common things to do is just in the middle of dinner or the middle of anything, just ask Google something. And we instead of solve a problem, we ask Google. And sometimes she's able to search through all the information, come up with the data, piece it together, and give us knowledge. But whenever you ask Google a question that has anything to do with the higher meaning of life, the deeper substances, she just says, I haven't learned how to do that yet. Or, you know, why don't you consult some other place? And so she's, she's never able to put together an answer because Google isn't wise. She may be knowledgeable. She may be informative. She may have access to everything, but she isn't able to be wise. And one of the great needs that we have biblically defined and in our culture is to be wise men and women of God. And wisdom doesn't just come from our ability to gain data and information. Even if we spend all of our days reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, studying the Bible, reading all the theological textbooks, even if we did all of that, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will be wise, that we will actually grow in biblically defined wisdom. Hence why Paul says in chapter 
5 verse 15, after he's outlined all these great intellectual doctrines of salvation, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, but as unwise. He's explained to them the glorious doctrines, but he's not assuming that they have now become wise in how that they live. There's a step beyond knowledge, and that is exactly the theme of our passage today, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus in a dark world, in an evil world, in an ignorant world, in an information-rich world, we need to be the type of people that are wise, able to make the next jump from knowledge into wisdom. And we're going to explain, and Paul's going to explain, three ways today in which we can grow in wisdom, that we can actually be wise, not unwise. So three points for today's message. If you've got a pen, you can write them down or type it up or however you want to do. But one main point, and I'm going to give you sort of just a definition, I think, biblically defined of wisdom. To be wise is to walk in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. I'll say that again. To be wise is to walk in God's world, God's way for God's glory. And the three points I want to take us through this passage, three verses, three points. Point number one, we walk wisely by carefully reviewing our walk. Don't need to take them all down because I'll remind you later. We walk wisely by making the best use of the time. And we walk wisely by understanding the will of the Lord. So let's jump on in to point number one to see how we can grow to become wise men and women of God. Point number one, we walk wisely by carefully reviewing our walk. So right in terms of structure of where Paul has been going in this letter, as I said, chapters one through three outline the plan of salvation. Then in chapter four, he began with, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you received. Then he said, do not walk as the Gentiles do in chapter four, verse 17. Then he said in chapter five to walk in love as Christ Jesus has loved us. Then in chapter five, verse eight, he said, walk as children of light. And now he's saying in chapter five, verse 15, to walk wisely. And this begins really the section that takes us through nearly to the end of the book. Chapter 5, 15 verses, through to chapter 6, verse 9, really are one coherent unit. How to walk wisely in God's world. And what that looks like just generally, but also specifically in our family, with our parent-child relationships, husband-wife relationships, slave-to-master relationships, uh, in, in slavery, and we'll get there and explain that later on. So we kind of we started a new section that will take us through to chapter 6, verse 9, and we're going to go through it pretty slowly because I believe that for myself and for all of us, we need to grow in wisdom. And so that is the theme of today's message is exploring this idea of wisdom. And we need wisdom. We need wisdom because the world that we walk in isn't black and white. Not everything is as simple as applying a quick Bible verse, don't do this or do this. No, the world comes to us in shades of grey and we walk through the world not knowing always what's the easiest, the smartest, the best decision that we have to make. And that's where wisdom comes. Wisdom is the ability for us to take the knowledge that we see and transfer it into skillful living. That's why Paul says we need to look carefully how we walk because the world is not neutral. The world that we live in doesn't come to us in black and white. It comes in gray. So as we began this morning, I wanted to ask you a question. Is becoming a wise person a value or a goal which you're aiming to achieve in your Christian life? Are you one who is seeking to be a wise one? Is that something that you're thinking when you wake up or as you view the next five to ten years of your life, you're hoping, thinking, praying, Lord, make me a wise person because biblically defined it is meant to be one of our goals the whole book of proverbs is directed toward that end and this itself is directed toward that look carefully then how you walk not as unwise lacking wisdom but as wise so what does it mean to walk 
wisely. What does it mean to have wisdom? Well, in a worldly sense, wisdom is, you know, often you often say, well, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit, okay? Wisdom says don't put tomato in your fruit salad, okay? So knowledge is the ability to understand something. Wisdom is the ability to be able to apply it and achieve the best outcome. So you might be like, well, technically, tomato is fruit, so therefore I'm going to put in my fruit salad. I can by knowledge but wisdom says no one will like it and it will ruin the fruit salad. But biblically defined, wisdom is actually obviously far more than that. And in the world, obviously, it's far more than that too. Biblically defined, wisdom actually begins first and foremost with our relationship to God. The first step and the, the first requirement for anyone to become wise is for them to be in relationship with God. You see in Proverbs chapter 14, 1, it's, or Psalm 14, 1, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So if you don't believe in God yet, biblically defined, you're not yet able to become wise. Instead, Proverbs 9, verse 10 says this. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I'll read that again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the first thing we need to know about wisdom is that it only comes through knowing God. You have to fear God, respect God, revere God before you can even start the journey into biblical wisdom. The second thing we need to know about being wise and wisdom is that wisdom comes from God alone, not just from knowing God, but the source of wisdom is not us. We don't figure out what is wise because now we fear God. No, no, God teaches us what is wise because we fear him. Proverbs chapter 2 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Say that again. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The whole study of philosophy is the study of fine words and wisdom, the ability to try and figure out what's the best way to live in this world. But philosophy is flawed from the outset because unless the philosophy begins with the fear of the Lord and the understanding that true wisdom comes from God, you can never arrive at true wisdom. But for us who know and fear God, we can, without feeling arrogant or proud, pursue wisdom and know that we've actually found it. We can know what is wise and what isn't wise. We can know what is true philosophy because we actually know the Lord, which gives us great hope. You see, in the Bible, it says about God that in wisdom, he created the world. It says about God that in wisdom, he planned redemption and salvation. We see that Jesus is the true and wise son, the one who perfectly knows how to live and act as a human being. And so our job is not to figure it out or come up with it like we, we have a blank slate. No, no, no. Our job is to follow the wise God and follow the wise son of God. So firstly, we need to fear God. Secondly, we know that wisdom actually comes from God. And thirdly, I want to give you my attempt at somewhat of a definition of wisdom that tries to put together these kind of streams and themes. So here's my definition. To be wise, and it's the main point of this talk, to be wise is to walk in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. To walk in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. The reason why I say those three things is this. The first step, as I said to wisdom, is to recognize that God is actually in control, that he made the world, to fear him, to worship him, to revere him, and to understand that every part of this world is his. There's no sacred and secular divide. There's no kind of part of our life which is just meant to be where we're godly and then we just do everything else. Everything is God's world. He's the smartest person that lived. He knows the best thing about everything. He flung the stars into the heavens and he knows them by name. He created our, our most intricate DNA structures. 
The world we live in is God's world. And so to be wise, we have to recognize that. We have to realize that we don't make it up ourselves. It's his world. That there's no neutral places. Everything we do has our relationship between us and God. Everything, in a sense, is worship. So we walk in God's world. Second aspect of wisdom is we walk in God's world God's way. Because it's God's world and he made it, he knows the best way for us to live. He knows the absolute best way to be human, the best way to love him, the best way to enjoy him, the best way to have relationships, the best way to govern the world, the best way to do everything. God knows the best way. So when we recognize that we live in God's world, then we we want to live God's way. Not our own way, like our father Adam did when they chose the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. They pursued a wisdom, but it wasn't God's way. And it brought death and destruction. And so it is for us. When we pursue trying to figure out how to do life or marriage or parenting or work or any endeavor that we do, If we're not turning first and foremost to God and his word for our way, we're going to be straying off into folly. But thirdly, wisdom isn't just about taking the knowledge and applying it and living the best life. Biblically defined, wisdom has to also involve having the best outcome in mind to actually achieve the best long-term goal. And so that's why I added the third element there. We walk in God's world. God's way for God's glory. This helps us to guide and direct every principle of our life so that we realize that everything we do is not about ourselves. It's not about just achieving, like having wisdom so we can have the world's best career, the world's best family, or the world's best portfolio. It's so that we can give all of our life to the glory of the Lord. We don't just do the right things. We do them for the right reason. We do them for the right motivation. So to be wise, to walk with wisdom, I think the whole biblical testimony and what Paul is saying to the Ephesian Christians in us is to walk, which means our whole manner of life, everything we do, in God's world, recognize it's his. God's way, recognize that his way is the best way and to have the right end in mind, to live for God's glory. So question, are you walking wisely? Is this kind of characterizing how you are living? Let me encourage you, church. It is for many, many, many of you, the way that you are processing all of life is you are often thinking, what will glorify God? I just want to glorify God with my life. So let me encourage you and spur you on to further seek living wisely. So how do we walk wisely? And that kind of brings us now to the three points in proper. Paul gives us three things, and I'll start with the first one here. The first way that we can figure out how to become this wise man or woman that fears the Lord and lives in his world, his way, for his glory, the first way is to look carefully how you walk. It doesn't sound so grand, uh, but it's actually a profound point. Look back at chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. You see, Paul is saying that we need to pay very careful attention. In fact, that word carefully there and the whole phrase is very deliberately saying, pay attention, give accurate detail to, study this. Don't just live on neutral or autopilot. You've got to think all the time how you are walking as a follower of Jesus. So we've got to carefully, wisely, and insightfully review the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we do everything. John Stott says it like this in his commentary, his great commentary on Ephesians. Everything worth doing requires care. We all take trouble over the things which seem to us, which seem to us to matter. Our job, our education, our home and family, our hobbies, our dress and appearance. Christians, we must take trouble over our Christian life. We must treat it as a serious thing it is. 
So Paul is saying here that one of the, the first ways that we can actually walk as wise and as unwise is actually to stop, to spend time and review how we're actually living. How could we possibly seek to know how to live God's way and God's world for God's glory if we don't even know what we're doing? We're not reviewing how we're spending our time, how we're, you know, reviewing um, how we do exercise and driving and career and family and relationships, all those things. We need to actually take stock and pay very careful attention to how we live. And he gives a reason why. In verse 16, it says, because the days are evil. We need to be Christians who are not just blindly going through life, just da, 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 happy, oh, hey, you know, da, da. like it's not like that. In fact, as Christians, we're to be on the watch. We're on the narrow path. Dangers lie to the right and to the left. Temptation rise to the right and to the left. Deception lies to the right and to the left. And we are so prone to falling off the track. If we want to be wise, if we want to live a good life, we need to pay very careful attention to how we walk. And again, I believe it's something that you guys do so well as a church. But it's always something we can grow in. There's always blind spots and areas of our life where we don't so much let the word of God touch. It may be sports. It may be TV. It may be money. It may be appearance. It may be how you view yourself or your self-talk. It may be your career and your, your education Look carefully, brothers and sisters, how you walk in all aspects and facets of your life. So what is it for you? In what area do you need to look carefully so that you can become wise? So that's point number one. We walk wisely by carefully reviewing our walk, not just going about in autopilot or neutral. We need to be in gear all the time. Because to be wise is to walk in God's world, God's way for God's glory. Let's go on now to point number two. We'll spend a little bit longer here. Point number two, we walk wisely by making the best use of the time. Let's read verses 15 and 16 again. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul now gives us a second way that we can walk as wise, not as fools. What we need to do is not just review our walk, but then take up and figure out what's the best thing to do with the time. How do we actually walk wisely? Well, we need to make the best use of the time. And the word like make the best use is another word which could mean redeem or to purchase. Um, one commentator, O'Brien, says that it's snapping up every opportunity. Um, so this idea is that we have all this time given to us and wisdom says make the most of it, redeem it, don't waste a second. It's like when you're at Woolworths or at least if you're anything like me and you see your favourite packet of chips on sale. You know you're going to buy them anyway every week, you know, whatever, the, the kettle, sweet and sour chili ones, whatever. You know you're going to buy them every week and then you see them on half price. Wisdom says snap up the opportunity and buy 25 bags. Does it not? At least it does for me. That's what it looks like to redeem the time is to see opportunities and grab them when you can and not let them go, which requires, first of all, that we're carefully viewing how we walk so we can see the opportunities. And then secondly, it takes the intentionality to make use of them. You see, time is that one commodity that we all share in equal terms. R.C. Sproul explains it like this. Time is the great leveler. It is one resource that is allocated in absolute egalitarian terms. Every living person has the same number of hours to use in every day. Busy people are not given a special bonus added on to the hours of the day. The clock plays no favourites. We all have an equal measure of time in every day. Where we differ from one another is how we redeem the time allotted. When something is redeemed, it is rescued or purchased from some negative condition. The basic negative condition we are concerned with is the condition 
of waste. To waste time is to spend it on that which has little or no value. To waste time is to spend it on that which has little or no value. I don't believe any one of us wants to get to the end of our days and stand before the Lord and be crushed through that sense of, I wasted my life. I had these opportunities. I had this time and I didn't make the most of it. The scripture here is liberating us from that regret. This scripture here is going to free us from ever having that possibility because we can look ahead and go, I don't want to, I don't want that to be my reality. I want to make the best use of the time that I have today. You see, each one of us has been given the gift of time. However many minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades God has given us. They're all a gift that we're called to steward. We don't own any of our minutes. None of us lays claim to the minutes of our lives. They're all the Lord's. He purchased us from death to life. He's given us life in him. And so now as servants, which is what we are, slaves of Christ, prisoners of the Lord, so to speak, we give our life and all of our minutes to him. And so wisdom says, if it's God's will, if God's way, for God's glory, make the best use of your time. Now, usually um, if I was preaching this at any other season of our life, I, I would talk about busyness and how we often get so busy doing so many things and work and kids and family schedule and, you know, parties and all these things that we're trying to do, relationships, blah, blah, blah. we're so busy, we don't have enough time, we don't, we don't spend enough time thinking. But actually now in our season of isolation, pretty much everything on our schedule is cancelled. And so suddenly we're faced with this huge opportunity to have, you know, to make the best use of the time. And the other reality is, is that now all of our excuses <laughs> have melted away. All those things that we don't do because we think we're too busy to do them, suddenly we could do them. But the question is, are you actually making more use of the time that you have now that you've got more time? As you don't have to commute to work. I mean, apart from the mums who now have to homeschool who previously had their kids at school, <laughs> everyone else seems to have a bit more time. For me, I look out of my garden and go, well, I mean, I, I was already working from home. So it hasn't really changed too much. But anyway, for me, you know, weeding the garden. I always think, well, when I have more time, I'll weed the garden. Have I started weeding the garden? I pulled about three weeds out the other day because I felt guilty because I was preaching on it. What about exercise? We often think, oh, I'll get around to exercise when I have more time. Have you done more exercise now? <laughs> Bible reading and prayer. I'm going to study the Bible. Well, suddenly you don't have an hour and a half long commute. Have you gotten up early and read the Bible yet? I mean, if you're anything like me, the re you'll realize that the problem is not the time. It's actually our heart and our schedule. You see the cupboards, I just don't want to clean them. Not because I don't have time to do it. I just don't want to do it. Uh, and I think that's the reality for most of us with the tasks that we wish we did. We wish we did them, but we actually don't want to do them, even though we have more time. So now in this isolation COVID phase, we have a great opportunity to make the best use of the time. But we have two, um, two problems, uh, two things that are going to hinder us from making the best use of the time. And um, in CJ's great book, Biblical Productivity, he outlines two things that are going to be stumbling blocks. Number one, our sin. And number two, our schedule. You see, the reason why we don't jump in and actually make the best use of the time, the foremost primary reason is our heart. You see, our heart is prone to laziness and selfishness and comfort seeking. And so we can be very busy doing a hundred different things, but not necessarily doing the best things. You see, for me, every week, obviously I have to write a sermon but I find myself every week putting it off, putting it off, putting actually the writing bit down. And I just I leave it to the last minute because I want to procrastinate because I'd rather check Facebook right now or I'd rather do this or I'd rather do some other task for the church than actually the hard one necessary task that I'm meant to do. So there, there's my sin. And then secondly comes in my sin of pride. 
I don't want to get to a Sunday morning and not have a good sermon to preach. So then I push really hard and try and get the sermon done, even though I've wasted time. And then I'll even spend a little bit extra time when I should be with the family or should be sleeping to make sure I don't produce a bad sermon. And then my fear of man kicks in and I make sure that, you know, it all works in together. And so that I pretend as if here's this perfect little sermon for you, when actually it could have been way better if I had been disciplined and made the best use of the time. And then to cap it all off at the end, I preach the sermon and reward myself at the end by doing something comforting and nice because what a hard worker I am. You see, the thing that is going to block you and I from making the best use of the time is our hearts. Our selfish, lazy, prideful, fearful, you know, people-pleasing hearts. And so the only way to overcome that and make the best use of our time is to go to the root of our problem and start putting our sin to death. Start looking at the reasons for what they are. Encounter them. I don't know what they are for you. That's what they are for me. And I have to start repenting of them. I have to start applying the gospel to them. So that's, that's hindrance number one to making the best use of the time is our sin issues in our hearts. Hindrance number two, though, is our schedule. And our schedule is eventually what ends up ruling our life. We put it in, we end up doing it. But what CJ actually recommends is before getting to your schedule, you need to go and understand your roles. You see, once you understand your roles as biblically defined, then you've got to come up with specific goals that are defined by the Bible and then transfer both of them into your schedule. The way that works is this, which protects us from um, actually just doing the urgent or, you know, protects us from actually giving into laziness and comfort seeking is going, no, 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 this is who I am. This is what I want to see happen. So I'm going to do it. So for instance, you review your life and you think, okay, what are my roles? Okay. For me, I'm a husband. Okay, so a husband, what, what's a biblically defined goal of being a husband? Okay, to lay my life down like Christ laid down his life for the church. Great. I've got a role, husband. I've got a goal, love my wife as Christ loved the church. But now I need to transfer my role and goal into my schedule so that it actually happens. Otherwise, I'm not making the best use of the time. All I've done is come up with knowledge, but I haven't walked in wisdom. Wisdom now says, get out my calendar and plan, how can I best love Maddie this week? How am I going to show her that I have deeper affection and care for her? How am I going to make sure that I'm you know, helping her to enjoy the Lord and read the word and pray and study and all those things? And I actually need to put it in my schedule so that when other opportunities come up, I'm actually living out of my roles and my goals, not out of the immediate or the urgent, so that I can make not just use of the time, but the best use of the time, as the scripture calls us. So what is it for you? What are your roles that God has given you? Maybe a husband or a wife, maybe a son or a daughter, maybe uh, an employee. What are your goals as biblically defined? What is God calling you to do in that particular role? And then how are you transferring that into your roster, into your schedule, so that it actually happens and doesn't just live in the world of ideals, But so you don't get to the end of your days and go, I wish I had have done those things. No, actually, if we address our heart and address our schedule, we can make the best use of the time. For the days are evil. Our hearts are evil. We're going to be prone towards the old self rather than the new. And so we need to discipline ourselves, gather ourselves, and work hard to make the best use of the time. I also thought that perhaps maybe there was a good opportunity to think about what would it look like um, in this pandemic season to make the best use of our time. Um, But I think I might just put them in the blog uh, and we can read about them later for the sake of time uh, because they weren't exactly profound. Um, Actually, no, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll do one. Here we go. So how do we make the best use of the time in our pandemic? Number one, let's not waste our pandemic. Let's not waste this season because there's one great thing that this pandemic can teach us about time and about scheduling is that we do not know what will happen tomorrow. We can spend all of our days worrying about the future, about what we've got to get done and what people are going to think of us and what if it happens and what if it goes like this and X, Y, Z. And then an isolation happens, a lockdown happens. And suddenly the wedding that was planned has to be postponed. Suddenly the work presentation you had to do, you don't have to do anymore. Suddenly the assignment you were meant to hand in, you don't have to hand in anymore. All the things you were worried about get cancelled. 
A pandemic can really teach us that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, is true. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The pandemic can teach us not to worry about tomorrow because we have no idea what is going to happen. We really don't. It can teach us to focus on the minutes and hours that we have in this day, to make the best use of this day because we don't even know if we have a tomorrow. So don't waste your pandemic, brothers and sisters. Make the best use of the time that God has given you today and hand over tomorrow to him and wait for it to come. It doesn't mean that we don't do planning or thinking or strategizing. It does, but we do it with a very, very open hand. And we don't invest our identity and our glory and our hope in the future. We invest it in God and then live for him in the minutes and hours that we have today. So how do we make the best use of our time? Well, we walk in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. By addressing our sin problems in our heart, which lead us to waste time. And instead, we evaluate biblically our role, what we're called to do, biblical goals for that role, and we transfer them to our schedule so that we don't waste our time in the end. It's point number two. It's a very practical sermon. Point number three, verse 17, we walk wisely by understanding the will of the Lord. We walk wisely by understanding the will of the Lord. Of the Lord. Let's read verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul's given us, firstly, the first way to be wise is to look carefully how you walk. Secondly, we need to make the best use of the time. How do we know what the best use of the time is? Point number three, understand what the will of the Lord is. We don't have to make it up. It's there for us. He begins by saying, Ephesians, brothers and sisters, don't be foolish. You see, in the wisdom literature of the Bible, there's three main characters, the wise, the simple, and the fool. The wise person is the one who fears God and walks in God's will, God's way for God's glory. The simple person is the one who is ignorant, who, do, who hasn't yet learned. It's the youth. It's the one who, who's not outright disobeying, is not really following God, just doesn't yet know. But then there's the third category, the fool. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man listens to advice. You see, the fool doesn't listen to counsel, doesn't listen to judgment from God, doesn't turn to God to figure out what to do. The fool just does whatever he thinks or she thinks is right, follows his heart, follows his feelings, follows the culture, follows other people, but doesn't follow the Lord. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, don't be foolish. Don't turn to those around you or turn inward to find out what to do. Turn upward. Turn to the Lord. Which is why Paul then finishes by saying, understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. One of the common questions um, I get asked or people want to know all the time is, what is God's will for me in my life? What am I meant to be doing? You know, when it comes to relationship decisions, you know, should I date this person or not? Or work decisions, should I take this job or not? Or this promotion or not? Or, you know, family decisions, should we have another kid or not? Should we have twins? Doug and Chris, they thought, yes, we should have twins. That would be a great decision. You know, we want to know from the Lord what we should do in our life. And so all different methods to try and 
uncover what God's will is. We don't want to live, you know, just our own way. We don't want to be foolish. We want to know God's will. And we know God is sovereign. We know he has a plan for each one of our lives. So then we come up with all these methods to try and uncover what God's will is. So, you know, we think of like Gideon and judges who put out a fleece and said, Lord, if it's wet in the morning, but dry in the earth, then I'll know this is from you. And then God does it. And then he flips it and does it again. He's like, okay, God, I really know it's from you. Or we play, you know, the dream sign game. So we go, Lord, give me a dream and then confirm it in my life. So you go to sleep and you're like, Lord, and you, and you have a dream and you see a turkey in your dream, which meant that you took this job. And then you're driving in the car and you see a turkey. You think, oh, it's from God. I meant to take the job. Definitely. That's what's happened. Or you play Bible roulette and you think, Lord, what do you want me to do in my life? Uh, and so you search for counsel and you flip open your Bible. And this is an old preacher's joke, but I'm going to go for it here. You say, Lord, what should I do? And you flip open to Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, which says, And Judas um, threw down the pieces of silver into the temple. He departed and he went and hung himself. You're like, oh, okay, I'm going to find a new Bible verse to find. And you go to Luke 10, 37, and it says, you go and do likewise. Think, oh no, what am I going to do? So then you flip again and John 13, 27 says, what you were going to do, do it quickly. It's like, oh no, oh, it must be the will of the Lord. It must be what I have to do. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says, understand the will of the Lord. Because notice he said, understand the will of the Lord, not uncover the will of the Lord. You see, our God is not sneaky. Yes, he's omnipotent. Yes, he knows all things. And yes, he has a plan for your life. But nowhere in scripture does he say he's going to tell you all the details of that plan. He's not going to make you miss out on his blessing and all the good works he's called you to do in advance because you didn't find a fleece and a sign and a dream and play Bible roulette. That's not how God operates. That's not how we're meant to operate as followers of Jesus Christ. We're never commanded to understand the will of the Lord like that. Now, at times, God does speak through dreams. At times, God can speak through signs. At times, God can speak through Bible roulette. But that's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is understand the will of the Lord, to search for and seek it out. And God hasn't kept his will hidden from us. He's revealed his will. Where? In the scriptures. See, we can know what the will of the Lord is because he has told us. He has actually revealed what his will and plan is in this world. And Paul already in the book of Ephesians has told us what God's will is. So understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what's the will of the Lord? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to all, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, God's will, God's plan is to unite everything under Jesus Christ. That's the will, that's the plan of your life, is to be a part of the great great cosmic plan to unite all things under Christ. In chapter 2, we learn that God's will is to create a new humanity out of Jew and Gentile, bring them together into the church, and then chapter 3, display that to the heavenly powers through the gathering of the local church. That's God's will for your life. Chapter 4 talked about walking in a manner worthy of God, to live in purity, to live in unity, to Uh, unity, to put off the old self, to put on the new. That's God's will for your life. So when it talks about what does it mean to walk in God's will, I don't know what God plans for me. Well, all those things start there. When you're thinking about all of your life, start with God's revealed will in Scripture. Some other verses which can help us. If you go to 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Timothy, sorry, chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved. Part of God's will is that people would become Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to 18. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what's God's will for you? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Want to know what you're meant to do today? Don't look at sexual immorality. Don't be involved with it. That is God's perfect will for you. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What's God's will for you? Be so consumed with him and his beauty and glory that you want what he wants and therefore you get what you want because he always gets what he wants. You see the logic there? So when we're trying to figure out how to live in God's world, God's way for God's glory, we don't need fleeces. Uh, We don't need dreams and signs, though they can help. We don't need Bible roulette. We just need the Bible. And we need to take time to understand what it says, to see how our life fits in with that plan, to conform all of our life into the image of Christ, to follow, actually, Jesus's manner of living. That's why Paul says here, understand not what the will of God is, but the will of the Lord. How does Jesus want us to live? Well, he showed us by living. So we follow his way. We become more and more like him. But what do we do when we come to those hard times, when you're trying to think, all right, but I still don't know what I'm meant to do in this particular circumstance or scenario? Well, let me give you, like, here we go. There's six quick things you can do when you're really confused about what God's will is in your life. Number one, as I've said, know your Bible. Does anything in what I want to do, is it affirmed by Scripture or denied by Scripture? Ask both questions. Secondly, know your God. Bring it to him in dependent and faithful prayer. Ask him what you want. he wants you to do. But don't necessarily expect him to whisper it in your ear in a still small voice. That's not his ordinary means of revealing his will to you. He's already shown you in the word. Number three, ask for wisdom from others and seek counsel. The fool does what seems right to him, but the wise seeks counsel from others and actually listens to it. Then fourth, after you've done all those things, make a decision. You actually just have to make a call. You don't have to have a sign from God. You don't have to see a turkey to know you're meant to, you know, have Thanksgiving dinner. You just make a decision. Number five, you trust God with the outcome. The sovereign one is in control. Number six, you take responsibility for the consequences. You see, the Lord wants us to pursue him and he will reveal things through scripture, word and counsel, but ultimately he will make us make the decision and we will bear the consequences. And then we have to take responsibility for them. Oftentimes we can be slow to make decisions because I'm afraid, this is for me, of the consequences. But the wise man and woman surveys the best opportunities, surveys the scriptures, brings it to God, asks for counsel, and then makes a call and then humbly accepts the responsibility for whatever happens as a result. Don't be foolish, brothers and sisters, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's not a secret. He's revealed it to you. He wants you to be wise, to walk in his world, his way for his glory. But as we end with this highly like applicatory and, you know, application-centered sermon, I want us to just remember this, that we are not going to live wisely perfectly, that we are at times are going to be foolish. At times we're not going to look carefully how we walk and we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to sin. We're going to waste time. We're going to fail to make the best use of it. We're not going to understand what the will of the Lord is and we're going to go against his will and wise counsel. And that's why our hope is not in us and our, you know, our purpose in life and our, and our, our future expectation is not in our performance, but in the truly wise one who walked before us. I want to remind you that Jesus Christ is the only truly wise man that has ever lived. He perfectly, carefully looked how he walked. He perfectly made the best use of every single opportunity given to him. And he perfectly understood the will of the Lord. Yet, Jesus Christ was made a fool on your behalf on the cross. He was publicly shamed and made to look like an absolute fool because of your sin and my sin, because of your folly and my 
And because Jesus was made a fool, we can become wise. Because Jesus was shamed, we will never experience shame even though we deserve it. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Our only hope of walking wisely is to walk in the steps of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to humbly come to him when we fall short of all these three things that we're meant to do and seek grace to help us in time of need and to live by the power of his Holy Spirit that he has given us so that we can walk wisely in God's world, God's way, for God's glory. And may we shine like lights in our little isolated homes and wherever we are, so that people may see how wise and powerful God is by the way that you and I live. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I pray and ask that you would help us to be wise. Would that be a goal for each one of us? To wisely walk in your steps, to know your will, to make the best use of the time, to look carefully how we walk so that we can recognize just how perfect your world is that you've made and your way, that we would not go our own way, but go yours. And would you help us to do it, please, Lord, for your glory in all the grand and big decisions we have to make and the small money, in every sphere of our life, from worship to washing up, from, you know, all that we do and all that we say and all that we think and all that we spend money on. Lord, I plead with you. We plead with you. Help us to be wise. And may we do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing now, um, O Great God of Highest Heaven. Thanks, Henry.